well, what's your business strategy? And I'd say, my strategy is to make friends and keep friends. And that's, that's all we ever did. I told people this is the simplest business in the world. You just have to have the very best product and incredible empathy with your customers. Being the market is what uh, drives me. So I am the customer. All I'm doing is looking for people like me, that think like me, that want uh, the kind of things that I want. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Vermonter Paul Ralston, who, after the sale of his beloved Vermont coffee company, is by no means ready to wrap up his tenure as an entrepreneur. Welcome, this is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Bradbury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Today's episode is brought to you by the Vermont Small Business Development Center. Hello, Paul. Sam, how are you? Dave, good Paul, to be here. Paul, great to see you. One of my favorite entrepreneurs. Well, I, I never you. know what you're going to put in a box or a bag and try to sell. So It's whatever <laughs> I love is what I've uh, my entrepreneurship's all about. I'm not an opportunist. I just follow my heart and try to to bring things that I love to other people and then find people that love them too. That's my theory of entrepreneurship. All right. I guess we could just wrap up now, Sam. This is our, <laughs> yeah, our, our 45-second podcast. That's like so. incredible sound bite right there. And I this is the first time I'm meeting you. So it's really awesome to have you here at VSET. And I'm just excited to be able to sit down and learn more about your story. Um, I mean, based on what you just said, it sounds like you've always known or wanted to be an entrepreneur. Is that the case? I have been. I started um, my first business. I was eight years old, second grade. <laughs> and I... Um, I worried my brother so much that he gave me two houses on his paper route. And they were the houses at the end of this really dark, dead-end street. And I had to go down there every night. It was an evening paper route. Little did he know or I know that that summer, bulldozers would arrive and that dead-end street would be the beginning of a 500-house development. And Lottery at, ticket, right? As, I, as they built them, I signed them up to newspapers. And uh, I had that paper route until I, had, uh, until I got a driver's license. And when I finally sold the route, I had three other kids working for me. And we were covering, you know, 500 houses with uh, newspapers, making 10 cents a, a week a house. And <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that's how you find a market right there. <laughs> right. Oh, I love those stories. Yeah. And it's just, again, you know, the, uh, the paper route thing, I grew up in a family where um, both sides of the family were recent immigrants and, you know, everybody worked, everyone learned how to do stuff, everybody grew food, everybody cleaned and helped out, shoveled snow. And so when my brother was old enough, they made him do the paper route, and then I wanted to do it, so I did it too. The great thing about the paper route story is that my mother would take all the money that I made, and it was all in, you know, nickels and dimes, a few quarters. And she, every time we got to $16, she would buy one share of Niagara Mohawk Power stock which was paying 6.5% interest. Stock price never changed, uh, but, you know, made some interest. When I started my first business in Vermont, the Bristol Bakery, I cashed in that stock. It was worth $1,440. And that was the total capitalization of my first business. And, you know, that's all it took 
uh, back in 1977 when I started. It's one of the things I, I think about for um, you know, new generations of entrepreneurs, the challenges that they face. Uh, we had different kinds of challenges, but you could get by. Um, you know, when I'd been in business for 10 years, I was only making $10,000 a year, but we, we, had, we had a decent car, we had a decent place to live, we had food, we went out, went to the movies. Um, things are, are really different now, and um, a lot fewer barriers to entrepreneurs, um, less opportunities in a way, because it was, Vermont was a really small place back then. Right. And the idea of someone opening a... Um, uh, European bakery, you know, that was like, and then bagels, uh, the first time. Uh, did you bring bagels to Bristol? I bought bagels, bagels to Bristol. And uh, a really great, one of the town fathers, very supportive, uh, came in one day, pulled me aside and said, you know, we really want you to make this work, but the donuts are just like leather. Oh, my God. <laughs> Never even seen a bagel let alone uh, <laughs> That's awesome. what they were. I was going to ask you, you know, I, I grew up mowing lawns, right? You just take the family push mower and, and just go try to do a neighborhood. And But there's a lot of services that do that now. Oh, yeah. Paper routes are probably fairly non-existent with tech, technology yeah. change. So do, do, you, do you think the that first generation, these eight, nine, ten-year-old, twelve-year-olds, whoever do that, like, where do they go to learn about entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge because there was lawn mowing in the summer, and then you shovel driveways or sidewalks in the wintertime. You knock on people's doors and you say, "Do you want me?" To, and they'd give you a couple bucks. I don't know. Um, my wife and I don't have kids, so we don't know uh, uh, the kid experience. Um, we know that there are more opportunities for people who aspire educationally. Maybe they're doing well in school. It's the people that um, the tinkers and um, the idea people who are not technologically driven, they're the ones, I think, uh, that have the, the most challenges. Uh, fortunately, um, you know, our education system now has begun to recognize the value of non-academic uh, employment. Uh, we've got the technical centers. Uh, they're really great. Um, culinary arts. Um, the maker spaces that have popped the, up, the yep. Mint in Rutland and the yep. Generator here are just two that we, we work with regularly. So it still is um, one of the things that I worry about now is that um, – the forces behind development of uh, new generations of entrepreneurs, um, and not to, because we're at VSET, not to spin off of that, but um, everything doesn't have to be technologically driven. Technology can be a tool, and everybody's going to need that tool in whatever they're doing. But the kids who um, who don't make robots, uh, the kids who uh, don't code, um, those are the ones that, you know, I wonder about. And, you know, I see the kind of opportunities I had almost non-existent today. I think they're selling sneakers on eBay. That's what I've heard anyway. <laughs> yeah, TikTok videos, it's sort of lottery ticket. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. I've, I've got two boys in, in high school and Sam's got one coming pretty soon here. So, um, wow, Paul. Uh, let's jump ahead here. P 
probably your eighth or ninth business, I guess, would be the Vermont Coffee Company. Um, tell us why you started it and, and any, any early day memories here. So the, the origin story of Vermont Coffee Company is an offshoot of the Bristol Bakery because the coffee company started in the front window of the bakery, which was just a little 1,000-square-foot uh, Main Street Bristol location, and we had four tables. Uh, and we used to go down to the Bowery in New York City to get used uh, restaurant equipment, bakery equipment. And I remember being down there one day and walking down the street, and there was an open door, and there was smoke coming out of this open door. And as I walked by, I realized that smoke smelled really good. I stuck my head in there, and there was a guy uh, wearing a, a brown jacket standing over uh, what looked like a cement mixer with smoke coming out of it. And I walked in and, uh, you know, could tell pretty quickly that uh, there was coffee. He was roasting coffee. And I said, is that for sale? He said, yeah. And he grabbed a brown paper bag, scooped it uh, hot into this brown paper bag, whole bean, took it home. Of course, it was fantastic. And while I was there, I sketched his uh, machine, his little uh, cement mixer machine. We didn't have you know, cell phones, and we didn't have portable cameras, and I didn't even own a Polaroid. I came back to Bristol. I talked to my friend across the street that was an antique dealer, showed him my drawing, and said, if you ever see one of these, let me know. No way. <laughs> and he said, you know, there's one that used to be in the Lincoln General Store, because during the winter, Lincoln, Mountain Town, you couldn't get deliveries. They would buy green coffee. And they would roast it through the winter up there. Out of necessity. That, out of necessity. Yeah. And it had been sitting in the garage of a local lawyer for a long time. It was all in pieces. I bought it for $300 and three dozen donuts. And Donuts or bagels? Because I know there was confusion <laughs> yeah, back true. then. That's true. By <laughs> then, we were making donuts. Okay. So he, um, we sold that, rebuilt it. Um, and again, no internet, no way, no even books. Um, and I had the, the good fortune of going to visit friends in California and San Francisco for a short uh, trip. And um, we went to a place called Cafe Trieste uh, in uh, North Beach. And I, they had a little roaster there. I talked to the guy. I said, Jesus, where, where do you get the beans? And he said, there's this woman named Erna Knudsen. And I got her telephone number. And Erna Knudsen, who, who um, passed away a few years ago, became known as the godmother of specialty coffee. She's the one who encouraged the whole industry to recognize an, a different level of quality in coffee. She agreed to sell me a, a few bags of coffee uh, on a mixed pallet and shipped it to Bristol, where I had it delivered to the local hardware store because they could get it off the truck. And then we drove the forklift down Main Street uh, to the bakery. <laughs> and then I, t I taught myself to roast coffee. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And I, you know, I worked on that uh, and for about three years. And then I sold the, uh, the bakery business and kept the coffee business. But here's, a, here's an entrepreneur um, segue story that uh, was formative for me. When I had sold the bakery and I still had the coffee uh, equipment, and I went to uh, two other friends in business who were really good at what they did. One was a guy named Cecil Foster, who was a great salesman, worked for a company up here called Hirschberg's uh, a produce distributor. 
And another guy was Cliff Adams, and he owned a string of pizza parlors. And I said, look, I want to do this coffee thing full time. And Cecil, I want you to be the sales guy. Cliff, I want you to be production. And they both looked at me and said, are you crazy? This will never work. This will never work. No one will ever pay the extra amount of money. Cliff knew because they both knew they were in the restaurant business. So not a, a 4th of July goes by, and I see Cecil. And the first thing he says to me is, boy, biggest mistake I ever <laughs> made in my life. And, and that was, for me, um, it was, even though I'd been in business then um, for a number of years, I still didn't have the confidence. Uh, I went through the whole time owning the, 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 uh, the bakery. I didn't know you could borrow money from a bank to buy something. You needed a, a, a new used oven. You saved up your money, and you went to the borrower, and you got it for cash. And I didn't know um, a lot of things. I didn't know about credit, and I didn't know about uh, – uh, I didn't know if I was pricing right. So I didn't have the confidence to uh, really push them and say, this is going to work. And, of course, that year – uh, Green Mountain Coffee Roasters started up in, in Waitsfield, and their story, you know, is an amazing one. Um, and I became friends with a lot of, of those folks. And so I hibernated the coffee business for 18 years. I, I put the, uh, the roaster in my garage. It sat there. Um, and I did a whole bunch of other things, uh, including a, a long stint at uh, Autumn Harp, where yep. we grew that company and, and sold that company. It's still here in um, Chittenden County, a really rocking company. And I spent three years living in England, uh, working for um, Anita Roddick, who uh, is one of my uh, uh, deceased now, but one of my uh, business mentors. And at uh, the body shop, right? At the body yeah. shop, yeah. And that was a really cool experience. And when I came back, I decided, okay, I'm going to kind of call this a sabbatical year. And I spent time in my garage with my blackboard and my wood stove, and the coffee roaster just covered in dust there. And back to where it had been for the prior yeah, 80 or 100 years. I know. And I, and, I, and I decided, okay, let me just hook this thing up. And, um, and Erna Knudsen was still alive then and got some more coffee. Um, and I told my wife that I was going to start, you know, a coffee business. And I talked to my friends in business, Kevin Harper from Autumn Harp, and they all said the same thing. You're nuts. And Green Mountain Coffee Roasters by then was a billion-dollar company just rocking and, you know, an amazing story. And, uh, but I really wanted the kind of coffee that I had experienced in California. And um, we had been in England where there was no coffee, so I was desperate for good coffee. And the Green Mountain coffee model was not the, the California, the West Coast model. They, had a, they were an East Coast uh, company. So I did start up um, the machine, bought some coffee, and I started going to neighborhood events and parties, 4th of July, Christmas parties, New Year's parties, and I'd make little packets of 8-ounce coffee. Uh, I made one blend my dark roast, and I'd bring you know 200 bags to a party and hand them out with a little questionnaire and ask people to give me feedback. I went through three or four cycles of that over a year, and when I decided, okay, I, I think there is a market here, that's when I said, this really is coffee roasted for friends. That's, that's what I'm about. And then the, the friend um, 
story became really the 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 whole raison d'etre of the coffee company. So when people would ask me, uh, or I'd do an interview, and well, what's your business strategy? And I'd say my strategy is to make friends and keep friends, and that's that's all we ever did. I told people this is the simplest business in the world. You just have to have the very best product and incredible empathy with your customers. That's so awesome. I think, too, you know, you've described the company as purpose-driven. And, you know, that was kind of one of my questions for you. You know, does that mean organic fair trade or is there something else to it? And, you know, making friends along the way is certainly a purpose. Right. So uh, remember, this is... um, uh, still in the 1990s, late 1990s, and I, I wrote a business plan. Uh, after I sold the bakery, I, I went uh, back to college and I got a degree. I never finished college. I started UVM in agricultural engineering, uh, but I ended up uh, getting a business degree. And so I learned all about the stuff about business. And once I decided uh, to try to pursue this, I wrote a business plan and I really worked on it hard. And I got in touch with Gordon and Anita Roddick at the body shop. And I said, can I come over? I want to talk to you about my, my business plan. So I flew over to England, spent uh, a week with them. And they really pushed me, really challenged me about organic fair trade, about, um, you know, because it was part of the plan, but it wasn't the plan. And so they said, you know, if, if this is something you're committed to, you have to be 100%. That's, that's really the only way to do it. And so that's right there. I decided that's what we would do. And, um, and some of what, um, some of those uh, external uh, factors are starting to become important now. They still aren't nearly as important as you would think. Um, you know, organic uh, is maybe 18% of the coffee market still, fastest growing. Uh, and Vermont Coffee Company, um, when I sold the company, was the leading, best-selling brand of organic coffee in the whole Northeast of the United States. Outstanding. So that was um, that was the thing. One other thing, I'll just tell you about uh, the perils of uh, of startup. Uh, right during this time, I'd written the business plan. Uh, I was ready to go. Uh, I still owned uh, my shares of Autumn Harp. And I checked in with Kevin, and he said, okay, the timing's perfect because, you know, we got a buyer. We're going to sell the company. And at that time, I don't remember what I owned, maybe, uh, you know, 5 or 8%, something like that. But it, the number turned out to be around 300000 bucks that I got from the sale. And the escrow closed on September 10th, 2001. And so I just took the check, I gave it to my broker and said, we'll figure this all out later, just spread it around my accounts. The next day, the towers. And one-third of that money was gone overnight. So instead of having a $300,000 $300, startup cushion, I had a two hundred, which I had to you know, capitalize the company and live on, which right. I knew was going to be several years. So again, you know, it's that thing with entrepreneurs that you got to be um, – you got to be ready to, you know, sit on orange crates, use an old door as a table um, until you get customers. Oh, I remember your production facility yeah. along the river there. It was sort yeah. of this spooky building. <laughs> I mean, no offense, but I was, <laughs> like, I was like, 
food comes out of there? Like, and it was a, a friend of ours. Who, <laughs> Not the one in Middlebury, which is beautiful, yeah. right? <laughs> it was in Bristol, and it's, it's a great little space. A lot of businesses. Autumn Harp incubated there. Honey Lights incubated there. Bees Wrap incubated there. A lot of uh, companies did. And, you know, uh, my friend who owned it was also a shareholder uh, in Autumn Harp. And I think... Uh, he asked me, you know, what I should pay for rent. And I said, well, um, you know, I can pay, I can't pay more than 4% of my, of my gross sales for rent. And, and, and well, what are your gross sales? I said, well, they're nothing right now. Um, so I said, okay, well, let's, you know, let's keep in touch. Why don't you, like, give me 150 bucks a month and we'll see what happens. That's happened. awesome. That makes yeah. such a difference. It's you know? huge. It's huge. And, of course, I took care of him, you know, when yeah. things uh, uh, got going. Do you think going. that still happens a lot? I mean, I, I see it. I think, you know, so part of the issue for entrepreneurs is space. And for those who um, are in the the maker world, manufacturing, uh, you need physical space and you need a certain kind of space. You need loading docks and, and access to uh, good roads and things. You know, I, I, a lot of folks in Vermont, at least in the, in the old days, used to turn old barns into, you know, into buildings. And they all struggled with that as infrastructure. Um, what's going to be important is who is going to be owning uh, the commercial and industrial spaces in Vermont going forward. Because the, the, the current generation, they're all getting older. So even the second and third generations of, let's say, the Pomelos are, um, you know, they're older now. And those guys, and down in our neck of the woods, it was the Carreras that uh, own a lot of the, they, they worked with us. They were our, our landlord at Autumn Harp. They were our landlord at the coffee company. And, uh, I mean, my deal with them was I'm never, ever, ever going to miss a, a rent payment. And I never did. <laughs> Just might be a dollar. I know. <laughs> no, well, but, you know, the, um, uh, we watched a number of tenants come into our space. I mean, even uh, most recently, um, you know, the demise of Stonecutter. And huge amount of fit-up paid for by the landlord, never recouped. Uh, Ecor English, I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, we lost a lot of money on Did that you? one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was our next-door neighbor. That became uh, our office space for the coffee company. And so the landlord who fit that whole place up got paid one month's rent. You know, he probably spent, I don't know, 100, 150000 fitting it up. Um, you know, we bought all their desks for like $10. They were all, you know, specially manufactured things. Like, we had no idea. It's like, wow, you know, this is like... Really yeah, do you cool. know Ted Adler at Union Street oh, Media, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, Ted the bastard. Um, I had a company that I personally invested in, and it went south years ago, and it had the stickers still on the tables, and he bought all the equipment and furniture for yeah. pennies on the dollar, and he would take pictures and send it to yeah. me for Christmas. Yeah. So, so, Ted, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> so a lot of it is um, uh, those folks who, for whom they have patient capital. And, and that's what it means. So the careers are sand and gravel and concrete, um, and they built all these concrete buildings around Addison County um, and you know, had them for a long time. And the, the son-in-law, Bill Townsend, now uh, runs it and great guy to work with. Um, so we started out um, in uh, Middlebury. We moved after about seven years from Bristol. We started with, I think, 7,500 square feet. When I sold, we were at forty-three thousand square feet, and and you know, and drawing board for 
more space um, necessary. So that's part of the challenge, um, you know, for folks in Vermont. Uh, I look around with my, my new venture. Um, you know, we've been looking for different kinds of space for, for different kinds of operations, and there just, there just isn't any. Yeah, there's a little bit of hustle that goes. I mean, obviously, we run a co-working facilities, and we have people that make whiskey here, writers, maple syrup. Yep. Um, there's a lot of tech companies as well, and these maker spaces, I think, are helping. And I think back to Ethan Johnson and his slurry uh, jet uh, company, and, you know, he hustled around, and Hazlitt Strip Casting opened up and said, you know what, we have that corner over there. We've got the power you need uh, Diane Abrazzini and just just started a company called Rigorous Tech, a robot company that's in Fletcher. Wow! And, and they're not the first robot company in Fletcher. So literally, <laughs> like think of that. Let yes. your head just get around that. The yep. two two robotics firms there, but I I think uh, it's not always apparent. The visibility into to certain spaces can be can be tough and. But I do find people are approachable and willing to take a chance on a on a team. Or yeah, a and again, the the real importance of of staying in the network and not just the new networks, but the old networks. Yeah. You know, hanging with the uh, chamber of commerce, those guys, the local folks, uh, going to the coffees and and things, so that people know that you're committed and and you're willing to work and and they're the ones that are going to hear about it if something's uh, coming up. Building the trust, right? Like. People know you. Yep. They know your name and your face. And, you know, there's something I wanted to – I want to backtrack a little bit because it just stuck out to me, and it's it's something I think about a lot. I'm just thinking about you starting Bristol Bakery, not knowing your debt options, not knowing, you know, really – Not knowing how to bake. <laughs> not knowing how to bake. You didn't mention that, so that's another great one. So that experience as an entrepreneur – and then, you know, get a business degree, write a business plan, you know, really learn all your options, you know, very different experiences, I'm sure. Um, but how, what do you attest to your success in both of those? You know, was there was learning more about the technical stuff really helpful? Um, was it something that you sort of always had in you that made you successful in the beginning, even though you didn't have the business knowledge? Like, I'm just thinking about entrepreneurs that have all different backgrounds, some of them trained, some of them not. Um, you know, where do you find that success? Is it is it experience? Is it learning? What is that? So again, I think um, for me, so the, the three biggest businesses I've been involved in, uh, so there was the bakery, there was Autumn Harp, and there's the coffee company. And I didn't know how to bake. I knew nothing about uh, cosmetics. And I knew nothing. I mean, I didn't know anything about coffee. I had to learn it all myself. Um, but Again, my entrepreneurship um, comes from this, you know, desire for personal uh, fulfillment. So uh, I grew up outside Boston, you know, Italian-American family, you know, pastries, really good bread on Sundays. You know, it's just like missed that stuff in Vermont. And it's like, okay, you know, can't we have some, some bread? You know, and uh, and then once you you know go to the city or go to uh, uh, Montreal, and you know you're into bagels, and it's like, why can't we have bagels? And uh, so I think for me it was um, the passion for the product, and uh, one of the things that I say is that from my perspective, being the market is what uh, drives me. So I am the customer. Such an advantage. So uh, the, all I'm doing is looking for people like me 
that think like me that want uh, the kind of things that I want. And to the extent that we share values, um, that, uh, that tends to be uh, true of everybody. And whether you're a white bread person or a, a, a pan au levin person, you know, um, you're still, you know, you're, if you're living in Vermont, you have certain uh, core values that, um, that, that make us a community together. So what was it about Autumn Harp that, that hooked you? If it, you know, if cosmetics wasn't a thing that you were particularly interested in, what was it that? So um, after uh, uh Graduated from college in 1986, went out to California for a couple of, couple three years, and I was in nonprofit arts administration. I just gotten this business degree, and I thought, geez, I can really, you know, help with this. And it was terrible. Um, I mean, it was great being out there. Um, uh, we were out there um, during the uh, the World Series earthquake. We were out there for. Uh, an amazing sports time. Uh, San Francisco uh, 49ers won back-to-back um, Super Bowls, and the Giants won the pennant, and the uh, Oakland A's won the pennant, and then the earthquake hit. And um, after the earthquake, naturally, all of the funding for everything except for human need just completely dried up. So the arts took a real took a real beating. So all of a sudden, you know, I had to scramble around a little bit. And my friend Kevin uh, Harper, uh, I can't remember how we reconnected, but um, he called and said he could use some help, you know, because he had some ideas and some plans. And so went back to Vermont, started working on a new business plan for Autumn Harp, uh, spent a year doing uh, a a capital raise, which I I look back now, it was a total of $400,000, I think. Uh, I remember seeing the documents, right? Right? (laughs) I know. And we we went out to uh, Mary's. We went to like 40 lunches at Mary's, you know, like $5,000 at a time, a, a few ten and $15,000 investments. But so we, we raised the money. Should have had your mom invest it for you, man. I know. Well, they were competing against like, I think the first product was the lip balm, yeah. the, the unpetroleum yeah. product, which right. was really a differentiator and yeah. probably toward values and, and yep. purpose. And, you know, they were competing against Susie Chapstick, right. which was the the gorilla and Blistex and, and all that. And along the way, I mean, Kevin had, um, uh, met, um, Anita, uh, I guess Anita and Gordon Roddick. And they said, yeah, you know, if you ever figure anything out, like get in touch with us. So, uh, he kept chasing them. And eventually we made a product, uh, called honey stick, which was just a lip balm and a stick, but it was sourced with, um, uh, Tanzanian honey with a project that Anita was working with. And I mean, she was just over the moon with it. Uh, And it became the number one selling item body shop worldwide. And we were rocking. And in order to produce that product, we said to the body shop, to Gordon, we said, you know, we, we, we need to, you know, buy equipment and we need to expand. And, you know, we just killed ourselves with this capital raise. We can't do it again. So he said, okay, let me see the plan. And they ended up, um, basically, um, we had a deal. They lent us the money to, to buy the equipment at you know no interest rate. And we paid them back with a sale of product to them. They would give us 90 days uh, a purchase order with cash payment. And we used that for the working capital to make the product. So they saw innovation and drive. And uh, and they 
invested in us. And we went on uh, to make a whole bunch of really great products for them. Yeah, so neat, so yeah. neat. And and many of the team there are off doing other yeah. things. Uh, Abbott Stark, right, with OG. Yep, OG and, is really rocking. Yep. And, and yeah, those graduates from uh, those businesses, I mean, a lot of them are still at Autumn Harp, but still really really going. We had a, we recruited a number of folks from when they moved up to Essex uh, to the coffee company because that's a commute thing now. Um, and if you've got a family and kids and stuff, an extra hour and a half a day on the road is not that attractive. Uh, so again, you know, it's a small world. I tell people that, um, you know, you gotta, you really gotta treat your your people right because I'm gonna steal them if you don't. <laughs> All right, we, Sam, we got to get a couple more questions in before we, we wrap up. But um, congratulations on the sale of the company. Thank I think you. that's worth um, it. And really, thank you for for doing it just prior to our taping the podcast. Excellent. That gives us a, sort of a, a bookend here. But I, I I noted you were quoted as saying, you know, when you had turned a certain um, number of years, you were trying to think about transition. And it, and it took a few years to get there. Can you just describe that process that might help one of our listeners out there? Okay. So it was when I turned 65, which is not that big a milestone anymore, but um, it is a milestone. Um, and by then, uh, the coffee company business was well organized on a clear trajectory. I had recruited an excellent management team. We had long-term employees. Uh, we had strong relationships with our customers. And I started dropping back to pursue other interests. And uh, and one of those interests was exploring what the transition, uh, you know, the generational transition would be for the company. And I, I looked at a lot of uh, different possibilities. And our, our size uh, prevented us from doing things like employee ownership. We were too small. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I, I tried a number of things. I even uh, I spent some time with the Vermont Community Foundation because this time, you know, we were making, you know, we had a strong uh, profit and we were uh, returning a lot of that to the community. And so I went to the Community Foundation with the idea that I would uh, sell them uh, a 45% share in the company. I would put 55, I put, I can't remember the numbers, but they were going to have a, chunk that was going to give them a million bucks a year uh, when it was, uh, you know, when it was done. And they had just come off a bad experience uh, uh, having someone donate a, um, a tennis thing to them. And, and so anyway, their board shot us down and we didn't, we didn't get to do that. And Paul, so, come to us next time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We have a venture fund. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a nonprofit. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I okay. wish I had. Damn uh, it, Sam. I know. I've been trying. I've been wanting to do this with you for a bunch of years, but literally you're not on LinkedIn. So to me, I, I was am. like, he doesn't exist doesn't anymore. Exist. Where is he? Yeah. So, My bad. Um, I mean, one of the, th the things, you know, we... Um, uh, along the way, other people, you know, would come to me. And sometimes it was cold calls. Uh, I had a long-term friendship with a number of Green Mountain Coffee Roaster alums, and, and they would come around periodically. And uh, towards the end, there was a group that I was very excited about. Uh, they were the cream of the crop uh, from GMCR. And I hate to say it, but they never showed me the money. And, uh, I mean, and... If they had showed me the money, 
I would have sold it to them for half of what I eventually sold it for because I didn't have a, a investment banking firm behind me. I was doing it on you're my own. You're learning again. You're learning to be a baker like, again. Right? Yeah, it was yeah. just like, oh, okay, these are the you know four to seven times EBITDA is all it's worth. And, da, 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 da. and well, actually, trajectory, growth, all these things are huge factors in the value of a company. And so that didn't happen. Um, you know, uh, I'm not disappointed, but that would have been a great outcome. Uh, so uh, eventually I realized uh, I really got burnt out on, on trying to wrangle it myself. And so my, my attorney, Ken Merritt, said, you know, you, you got to go, you got to get a professional to do it. And I said, well, what do you think, what's it going to cost me? He says, don't worry what it's going to cost you, because they're going to get you a lot more than right. uh, right. Right. Everybody says that. I right. know. And I, I, we got hooked up with this really great boutique firm out of Boston, um, Tully and Holland, super, super great people. And uh, they did an amazing job. They made, made a painless thing. Um, and... Uh, we basically we spent three months doing uh, prep, writing you know documents and stuff, and we we had our longtime uh, local accountants do a quality of earnings report, so we had good solid financials. And sixty days later, you know, we had a closing. Sounds like it just added years to your life. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it was. Uh, <laughs> That's worth the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. That, I know that, that an engagement no, like that. No, and it's it's costs. it's yeah. it's true. I mean, the those guys, um, they they made a chunk of dough, and uh, it was worth every penny for me. You know, they they delivered me many many times more that um, in uh, the sale price. So, um, but. By this point in time, and I, I know I'm uh, overstaying my time here, but <laughs> I, I had, um, uh, for the last two years, I came into the company Wednesday afternoons. I'd have lunch with, uh, with folks, sit down, um, and we'd review financials at 1 o'clock. Um, we'd look at the cash, cash position. We'd look at all the metrics. We'd um, approve uh, spending requests, purchase orders, and, and I'd sign checks. And then, you know, I was out of there by three o'clock in the afternoon. Sounds like good leadership over there. And it was, you know, it's a testament to the team. Yeah. And, uh, and, and our particular focus, which was always, you know, cash management is, is pretty much the whole thing. And, and making uh, friends, right? And making, making friends. friends. <laughs> and our banker, you know, we had a $750,000 letter of credit, which we never uh, touched, uh, line of credit. And there, you know, he's like, don't you, you know, don't you need, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Please borrow at some point. Yeah. Right. So, um, but, um, but you have to, uh, again, no kids. So no um, obvious generational change. And. Uh, and actually, most of the folks in the company were, uh, I mean, they were younger than me, but they were in their 40s and 50s. So it's not like there's a long time horizon, uh, even for those folks. So it really was about finding a strategic partner. I mean, there were plenty of money people that wanted to buy the company, but we wanted, you know, an operating company. We wanted a real company that made and sold real things to real people. Uh, and that would appreciate us. And we sold to Stonewall Kitchen, and they, they so are great. all those things. Yeah, great, they're great an company. awesome company. Yeah. 
Um, so before we wrap up here, I do want to just, you know, give you the opportunity to plug your, your newest venture here. Like I said, you're by no means ready to give up here on entrepreneurship. Tell us about Little Village Enterprises. So Little Village Enterprises right now is organized as an L3C. Mm-hmm. So we are a low profit company. And we are working in the space of food security and decent housing. So we're not um, working in the space of local food or affordable housing. And I could tell you some other time about the distinctions that I've learned about those two things. Mm. So we're working to um, uh, enable um, hungry people to get access to food. And the first project that we're working on in that uh, is with uh, a nonprofit in Addison County called Addison Allies. And they are organized to support migrant farm workers who are doing all the work on Vermont farms. And so there are a a bunch of uh, ladies in that community that cook um, for the farmers and they don't have proper facilities or proper sanitation or access to wholesale purchasing. So we're working with them to uh, fit out a community kitchen where um, there's about a dozen uh, ladies that uh, that cook. Uh, and so we're trying to uh, facilitate um, a more efficient system for that. It will include, you know, a, a facility with equipment. There'll probably be some delivery vehicles. Um, and then we're going to provide them with the marketing and promotional stuff that they'll need in order to get it out there. And the best part is we're going to have amazing, amazing Mexican food. There's uh, at least four areas of Mexico. It's not Mexican food is not homogenous. There's all different kinds of styles. And so our first, um, our you know, kickoff event is going to be June 26th. Uh, at the Marble Works in Middlebury, and we're going to have a Mexican food festival, and we're going to eat and drink and dance. That is my dream. It's three days before my due date, but I'll be there. But we'll be back. We teach a course at <laughs> Middlebury College, and we work with the college and all their and, and the counties, the entrepreneurs throughout. So and this, you know, bring the, it on. The, this whole community, uh, the, uh, a Spanish teacher at the at Middlebury College is acting as a coordinator for us. There's a couple other nonprofits. There's a UVM uh, grad student that's uh, working with us. So that's one thing. Um, we also have a, um, we're trying to crowdsource um, commodity food growing in Vermont. So we're um, there's a guy up here. Uh, Queen City Gardens. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Ethan or Nathan. Um, and so we're, we're uh, trying to enroll people to just uh, let us roll in and uh, plant a row of carrots in their backyard. And then we'll pick them. Uh, I love them it. Having your entrepreneurial uh, vision and zeal, like you, you might just pull it off. So. Yeah, we might. We <laughs> right? Might. I wouldn't bet against you, Sam. Addison County is not getting rid of you, Paul. Yeah. All right. So we, we do need to get to the final question here, and we could we could go on, on and on. Um, I uh, do want folks to know you did serve four years as a state representative um, and, and an entrepreneur. Uh, did you feel like a fish out of water? Yeah, so the um, uh, the four years I spent in Montpelier, I was elected as a Democrat representing Middlebury. Uh, there were a lot of really great people that I served with. Uh, it was an important experience. Uh, it was frustrating 
um, as a business person, and particularly as an entrepreneurial business person, uh, the uh, lack of understanding of our ecosystem and uh, our relationship with government. Um, not that it's all bad. It isn't all bad. Um, there is just so much that our government could benefit from by uh, being more open to um, the experience of entrepreneurs. And not just what we the Chamber and all those guys, um, uh, VBSR, they all do a good job. But they're always lobbying on uh, particular legislation where uh, it's really the philosophy and the uh, you know the vision of, of of Vermont and how important um, you know little businesses are to our economy and how fragile um, things are and especially generationally now. Um, you know the the challenges that we face if if um, you know people uh, are afraid to take risks and uh, and that's really kind of what it's what it's about. Well, thank you for for doing that service. Well, Sam, I, I ask think uh, I was going to say this will be rather satisfying for you. Then um, our our final question is our magic wand question. So if you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would it be? Doesn't need to go through the legislature, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh boy, I should come up with something good. Uh, I, I think my magic wand would be 100% COVID vaccination. Great. Because I, I think that's gonna, that's obviously key to, you know, moving forward in 21 and 22. 22% to go. I yeah, just read. We're doing so great. We're getting there. Yep. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much. I it, it's. A bright I could Sam. do I could two, see, three more hours of this. Cool. Well, we didn't get to ask him like. Remember when you tried selling organic wood sticks yeah, yeah. in a box at yeah. Whole Foods? So it was like starter sticks. It was yeah. like three bucks Vermont a stick. Vermont Sweet Maple Kinley. <laughs> I mean, oh. he put a box of sticks All right. together Part at Whole two, Foods. Part two, Paul Ralston, coming your way. I loved it. I Firewood absolutely... for $3,000 a quart. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, Paul. You're welcome. This has been Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. We're thrilled that this episode is also brought to you by the Vermont Small Business Development Centers, which help entrepreneurs like... Actually, Paul, you could have used them back in the day. No, they they (laughs) helped me plenty. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, and let's go out and find a paper route. Excellent.